Video recordings of this podcast can be found on RaisingEquity.org and Raising Equity on YouTube. Welcome to Raising Equity. Today we have with us a woman who is seeped in activism and leadership. We have Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, who's with us, and she's going to share with us not only about her work in engaging other white women and being aware and woke, but also her work in women's leadership. She's the CEO and founder of Gaia Women's Leadership Project, and we welcome you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here once again <laughs> with you. In your yeah. company is always a good place to be. Well, and I think it's interesting how the universe brings folks together, right? So when I was introduced to you, it was through the Gaia Project, right? It was the the, is it an annual conference that you have? Yeah, it, it was an annual conference through 2018. We did not do it last year. Um, and this year, of course, we were planning on doing it again and uh, COVID intervened. Um, of course. But yes, it, it was prior to this, an annual conference called Gaia Women Lead um, run by the company, the Gaia Project for Women's Leadership. Yeah. Yeah. And what I remember most squarely, like, because I go to lots of different gatherings and conferences, but I remember your take on the heroine's journey. You know, people often hear about the hero's journey and the the twist that you took on it to center us to think about women and our 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 socialized experience as women in our society really resonated with me. I don't know if it's something that you can summarize quickly, but would you be willing to share with folks that idea? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the heroine's journey has been uh, sort of a subject of my study and teaching now for the last few years. And actually the book that I have coming out early next year is called Becoming Heroines. That's the title. Um, it's, it's steeped in the idea of the heroine's journey. Um, one of the things that I will just say is that anybody who's read Greek mythology knows the story of the hero's journey where, um, you know, over women or money, a great hero or land, a great hero is called to his journey and he goes out and he meets all these challenges and temptations and monsters and uh, comes back and, you know, w wins the spoils of war, so to speak. Um, the heroine's journey is a very different kind of manifestation. And as a trope, I find it really useful in the way that we talk about women's learning and women's leadership um, in part because the heroine's journey, once you're on it, in my view, is cyclical. We cycle back through all these stages over and over again. There's a spiraling of experience and knowledge. And we travel over the same spaces over and over again, almost like peeling back the layers of an onion, right? As we learn more, we develop more, we grow more, we become more aware. Um, a few key differences about the heroine's journey is that stepping onto the path is really a moment of awakening to the ways in which oppression has impacted us and the ways in which we've participated in it, um, particularly if we're white women or women of privilege. And, you know, one of the things that is really key to me is that once your eyes start to be opened to that participation and to structures and systems of oppression, you can't close yourself off from them again, right? Well, so once you, you're on you, the heroin you journey, you're on it for life. <laughs> you right? could, but we hope you don't. You <laughs> Right. You don't. I mean, it's very hard to. I haven't known very many people who have been capable of doing that. Um, I guess there are a few, actually, as I'm thinking about it here, but they'll remain nameless. Um, you know, one of the things that I that, that's really key, though, about the journey itself is that um, inevitably we progress through it. Um, and what we bring back, as opposed to the spoils of war on every cycle through the journey, is our stories and our knowledge and our experience that we share with our own communities. And so much of this is about, you know, the traditions of oral storytelling and um, the communication between women as we share how we've overcome certain challenges. Um, it's also the process of listening to one another, which, you know, as somebody who has 
been steeped my whole life in feminism and um, more recently in all the discussions about white feminism as a tool for oppression, listening, in my opinion, from the perspective of white feminists in particular, is a skill set that is vitally underused <laughs> in intersectional communities. And so the capacity to both share our stories and to listen to the stories of others is really um, the gift that comes at the end of the heroine's journey. And of course, you know, throughout the heroine's journey, we're challenged and we make mistakes and we you know, let our guards down. And there are massive losses along the way that are also learning experiences for us. And there's always, of course, you know, not to get too spiritual about it, but some form of divine intervention along the way. People are placed in our path. You, you're placed in my path. And this is how we end up here, right? Right. You know, you, you come across people and teachers at the right moment that support you on the journey and the path toward learning other things. And sometimes those teachers also fall away over time. Um, but, you know, that the, the process is one um, that leads to greater growth, not only for yourself, but also for everyone within your own community and the community of the world, frankly. Um, so that's a kind of brief summary of the heroine's journey as I see it. Yeah, I appreciate that. And what, what resonates with me is the way that you conceptualize even just in saying like the 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 riches, the win is not just for the individual, that it's for the broader community. And that I think is what resonated with me because oftentimes I think women stepping into leadership roles, like stepping into our power feels isolating and individualistic because we're so seeped in how men lead. Right. Right. And the irony of this is that, you know, that we had to do some revisions to my book um, because of COVID and where we find ourselves in the working world right now. The, it's, it's ironic that you bring this up because one of the key points that we, sh we have shifted in the context of the book is we look toward how uh, COVID and current crises are impacting work and life and politics and everything else is that um, it can no longer ever be about just the individual, right? Like originally the idea of the book was like, let's, let's help women move toward intersectional leadership and change. Now I'm really much more about let's like create revolution, right? Let's do radical re-envisioning for the sake of all of us, for the sake of the planet, for the sake of every community that we participate in. Um, so it, I think it has to be a move away from those traditional masculine models of leadership that are about the spoils for yourself, right? The paycheck, the, the uh, social status, the title, um, and much more toward how do we achieve and obtain and reclaim power so that we can create change for, obviously for ourselves, of course, but also for others. I love that idea. And so many people have talked about the pandemic being an opportunity to pivot and to shift in dramatic ways. But then there's the part of me that feels so, uh, what's the word, uh, nervous, um, dire when I see the statistics around how women are being edged out of the workplace, because so many of us are having to do double duty with caregiving and homeschooling. And, and I have male colleagues who are still who are asking for exceptions to go into the office building so that they can focus on their work. Right. Right. I mean, I, I've seen a number of articles now that have profiled women who have had to give up their careers, so to speak, to stay home with children because their male partners are refusing to pick up the slack. Um, and the outrage in the communities that I'm operating in from articles like that is real and palpable. Um, and, you know, it's it, it, the interesting thing to me about the pandemic in general is that I feel like it has just ripped the veil off so much inequity that many of us have either tolerated or knew was there or experienced in smaller ways, maybe in, you know, the form of microaggressions. And now it's all out there on display, amplified because we're all stuck in our homes and all the, the lack of balance that has existed for so many of us 
um, is impacting our day to day in ways that could never have been accounted for. You know, I'm a single mother. I have a six and an eight year old at home. Up until this very week, we're on day 77, the day that we're taping this. I haven't been able to work more than three hours a day. Oh, and gosh. that in and of itself is, you know, I have to do distance learning. I have to feed them. I've got to, you know, and, and it's really been a tremendous challenge. You know, the one thing I will say about this, I, I had a really interesting conversation a couple of weeks ago with Jennifer Brown, um, who again is also a diversity and inclusion consultant. And one of the things that she, she and I talked about in the context of this and the way in which so much has been revealed in the context of inequity and injustice through this tragic set of circumstances um, is that it's a perfect moment to question everything. And she gave me this great advice, which was, uh, which I've sh shared. It was an interview for one of our communities that we run at the Guy Project. And um, one, of the, one of the most amazing things she said was, this is a moment for everyone who manages and leads to listen to the people they manage and lead about what they really need. Because new creative strategies that, you know, three months ago, everyone would have dismissed as impossible are now... Uh, not only a possibility, but a, but a really desperate need for many of us. Yeah, a necessity. It is a necessity to do things differently. And I, I recall there was a time years ago, probably 10 years ago now, where someone came to me and said, Kira, we know that your expertise is around diversity. And back then we were just talking about diversity. Uh, we weren't even saying diversity inclusion or diversity equity inclusion. Yeah. Could you create an online experience? And I said, no, nope. I, it's something that needs to happen in person. To, you need to be able to be in the same room and push and touch. And now I have led successful, successful workshops with up to 150 people on Zoom, right? Like, and it yeah. blows my mind, but it was out of necessity. Yeah. It was, do we cancel this thing that was already on the books? We think we can do it. Let's try it. And it worked. And so it's pushed me to, to rethink a lot of things. And so there's this piece around how it's forced us to rethink our personal lives and the decisions we make. But my hope is that it also can push us to think about like how we then use our power and privilege to create different systems and structures. So like you said, any of us that lead, that have some power somewhere, how do we right. center those who we lead, who we say we lead and really find out what they need? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's necessary on so many levels, not just on levels that are impacted by, you know, traditional issues of gender, but, you know, I even think about it in terms of disability status. And Absolutely. one of the things that I keep thinking about is immunocompromised folks who really are not going to be able to leave the house to work at all for the foreseeable future until there's a vaccine. Um, you know, even the kinds of accommodations that, um, you know, proactive companies have taken are not going to meet the mark right now um, for what people who really do need, like can't leave their house for any reason need at this point. So right. every aspect of, of our leadership and every aspect of corporate policy is being challenged right now. And that's leaving aside all the sort of societal challenges that we're really up against right now as well. Yeah. And like, as if that weren't enough, <laughs> racism seems yes. to be on blast and it's not that it's anything new, but we're, we have video now and people can record each other. And like, I'm wondering as a white woman at this moment where there are so many examples of ways in which white women have been, have been tools of white supremacy. How do you navigate that in your community? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a very interesting, challenging time. Um, and I say that through the, through the lens of being uh, an educator, because that is one role that I take on in the political and activist and teaching work that we do. Um, I, I find myself in a sort of unique uh, position because 
obviously, um, you know, I, I, I work as hard as I can to be anti-racist. I'm particularly consumed at the moment in educating my young children to be anti-racist in everything that they do. Um, I see things like Amy Cooper and I have worked for women like Amy Cooper. I have coached women like Amy Cooper. Um, I have particular concerns about everybody that she supervised in her role and how her racism played out on, you know, in ways that I have witnessed, um, in, in toxic environments. Um, it, it's, it's, it's profoundly disturbing. And also I feel a personal obligation um, given that, you know, the majority of my audience and my clients are white women and particularly white women in corporate um, to really speak very directly to the ways in which we use and rely on white supremacy. And those those conversations are very uncomfortable. Um, and, you know, that's that's to be understood. Right. I mean, you know, Robin DiAngelo's book on white fragility is mandatory reading for everybody that I work with right now, okay. um, along with, you know, Dr. Kendi's book and Ijeoma Olu's book, which I think is sort of a foundational text. Um, so you want to talk about race. Yep. I, I feel as though um, there is a desperate need for white women to understand that even in progressive circles, if we are not continuously mining the ways in which we have internalized white supremacy, we rely on it to maintain power. Right. And I mean, like the Amy Cooper situation to me, it's such a microcosm of how white women who are mad at being challenged then invoke structures of white supremacy to maintain their authority, um, even though she was completely in the wrong, right? Um, and, and to me, these conversations are, um, are, are incredibly necessary. And also, um, I, I am admittedly a little bit uncomfortable with being in that role because, you know, my own work in relation to anti-racism, um, even though I've been an activist my whole life, these deep conversations about white supremacy are relatively new to my public work, at least. Um, and I, I am mindful of the fact that there are extraordinary black activists, black women activists in particular, who have been doing this work like yourself for decades, right? And so part of my, my aim right now is to want to really amplify the profoundly powerful black voices who have been doing this work for so long um, and, and not to necessarily be the conduit of all the learning, right? Um, it's, and it's a tricky situation uh, also because some of my audience won't hear it from anyone who doesn't look like me. And then once they hear it, then they will go out and seek it out and from other folks. But, yes. um, but, but it's a, it's just a profoundly disturbing time. You know, I spent um, a, a fair amount of time last night watching live footage from Minneapolis. Yeah. Um, through the protests, um, so hard to watch, like so painful. And, you know, one of the things that's really difficult, I think right now, if you are only consuming mainstream media and you're not consuming like rebel media or um, resistance media that's actually out there in the street, is that the images that you get are images of, you know, quote unquote, rioting, right? <laughs> or uh, quote unquote, looting. Like, let's leave aside the fact that, you know, Trump has given enormous tax breaks to corporations that have and is looting our government all the time, right? Well, um, yeah. But but all that said, if you're not watching, um, you know, on the ground media, you are missing the ongoing police violence that's happening minute by minute right now in Minneapolis. And I think for a lot of white folks, um, you know, in my audience who are watching CNN or MSNBC, the footage that they see doesn't give the depth of what's there. And I do I will say that because of the communities in which I circulate, 
um, the, the phenomenal black women activists that I know um, who are on the ground or have been on the ground in places like Ferguson and Baltimore and Charlottesville. And, you know, I do feel an obligation to convey to my audience, you need the full perspective of what is happening here. You can't look at this through one lens and not question your own feedback to it. Like, you know, I had a couple of white women on my feed this morning saying, I don't understand why they're raiding Target. And I, and I had to say to them, like, this is a rebellion. It is an uprising. You know, you care more about a couple TVs being walked out of Target than you care about a cop crushing a black man's neck for seven minutes. You know, that's, that is your own white supremacy speaking right there. You value the television more than you value a black life. Yes. Um, and, it, you know, so to me, I, I, I do feel like I have an important role in conveying to my audience, at least, the significance of where we as white women find ourselves in all of this and to call out um, the sort of unconscious biases that are still operating around this, um, including in ways that are very tough lovey. I've gotten a lot better about challenging it in others because I've also been walked myself on this a number of times in the past. And I have learned from that experience. Um, you know, we grow through uh, obviously, as the old saying goes, being outside of our comfort zone. So anyway, Absolutely. I feel like I could talk about this for hours, but that, that's where I sit in relation to it right now in a nutshell. Yeah. Well, and, and like the heroine's journey, we learn in cycles. It's like peeling away the onion that mm-hmm. we, because I, when I, when I watch what's happening in Minneapolis, there's a part of me that can watch it to a point and then yes. I stop because it feels so familiar. And with Ferguson, the Ferguson uprising there are times when like that feels so far away, but then there are times where it feels so close. And, and so just managing my own reactions and thinking about, yeah, the experience of tear gas. And we had to get a federal injunction to tell our police to not, to not tear gas peaceful protesters. I mean, a federal injunction, we got it. So, and for people who are like, well, you know, why did you do this? Or what you should have just done that. It's like, no, actually a federal court said, you aren't giving people proper egress, proper way to leave. You aren't giving them proper warning. You're why, why, why did you use chemical weapons at this point? And so like the militarization of our police, it's hard to watch. It's hard to watch. And yet, you know, we can't turn away. And so I appreciate, like, I think it's a, I think it's a matter of being in community with each other because there are people who won't hear me and who will hear you. And so that's why it's important that we're in relationship with each other and that that we don't just say, get your cousins like you do, but that you point back to folks who have been doing the work, but yes. that you open the door in a way that for some people I can't. For some people I can because I'm a I'm I'm an acceptable black person, right? Because <laughs> I have the degrees and I talk in a way that they can hear me. And then I point to folks who were in the streets every night, because I wasn't in the streets every night. Right. And so I really do think it's a, a both and and. So I would encourage you to, to, to continue to like own that role that you have. And like you said, you're humbly doing that as you point back to other folks. Uh, but there's a, something that you said about kind of the weaponization of mm-hmm. racism and white supremacy that, that we saw in Amy Cooper and we saw so plainly. And for me, that is the beauty of it. Because I've seen it happen in meetings. I've seen it happen in front of me and call friends like, you will not believe the the like almost like ninja maneuvers that happened. And you're like, oh my gosh, but people don't see themselves. And one of the things that I wanted your take on as a white woman is people have been talking about this whole thing around, you know, her being a Karen, right? Like, is that a slur? Is that a racial slur? 
And I, I have not engaged in those conversations on Facebook because I just don't have the energy because I got other things I'm doing. But what's your take on that? Well, I mean, look, I, I will say that I think that you can't, nothing can be a slur if it's not linked to systemic oppression, in my opinion. And, you know, calling somebody a Karen is not linked to systemic oppression. It's a pointing out a particular caricature of white womanhood that invokes white supremacy against black people leading their everyday lives, you know, or seeking out the manager. Um, you know, my view on this, when I, when I have white women, and I have white women people named Karen in my community who have gotten very upset about their name being used in this way, you know, you're, you are not going to lose a job interview because your name is Karen, right? You're not going to, you're not going to have somebody refuse to serve you at an institution because your name is Karen, right? You're not going to be denied access to education or, you know, other forms of support because your name is Karen, right? Like, so, so my response to it honestly has been, and again, you know, this is more of my sort of tough love mentality right now, but I'm sort of like, suck it up. You know, like if you're, if you're offended by it, that's your own fragility, right? You're, something is being pointed out in you or in your behavior that is triggering by the use of that meme or that name. And that's really where you need to turn your attention. If your fragility is being triggered by the idea that someone is calling out a characteristic of white women's supremacy, that, that, is, that is a call out for you to do more of your own work. Um, I am not personally offended by it. I'm not bothered by it. I understand why it's out there. I see it all the time. And I think that the other thing about it that's really important is that we need to be able to talk about um, the characteristic responses of white women who have not done their work in a way that is familiar, right? Because it's not like this, you know, the, the set of conduct that we saw in Amy Cooper, as we keep pointing out, is anything unique, Right. And so the Karen situation, the Karen meme is really a way of describing that conduct. And I'm not I'm just frankly not bothered by it. You know, I mean, I, I think that we need to have ways of talking about it. And it, we also need to have ways of acknowledging it. Right. Acknowledging that there are there. And again, we're seeing so much more of this because now we have video and we have audio and people can turn on a cell phone and tape it. But it's not like this is anything new. That's the other thing. Yeah. It's not like this hasn't been going on for centuries, right? <laughs> exactly. It's just now we get to watch it, you know, minutes after it happened on Twitter or Facebook. Um, and we're able to kind of categorize the conduct in a way that makes it accessible and understandable and honestly can be used as a teaching tool. That's the other thing. It's like, you don't want to be a Karen. You don't want to be called a Karen. Let's talk about how you undermine your use of white supremacy so that you don't become that in your daily life or you don't continue to be that in your daily life. So, um, so yeah, so that's my two cents on it. I'm, I, and I, I think that it's, um, it's one of those things where if you have an understanding of structures of systemic oppression, you can't, you know, I mean, I hope you can't be offended by it, right? Like I look at that and see it through the lens of all the great teachers and teachings that I've had over the last five years on all this stuff. And, um, and I saw it right away and was like, oh yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so I see the triggering as a sign of work and I'm, and I'm not bothered by it, frankly. I think it's, it's, a, it's an interesting teaching tool. Frankly. I appreciate you saying that. And again, I think there are white women who will hear you as a white woman say that and, and be able to consider that. Um, and so I appreciate you sharing your two cents. And I, I mean, my perspective is, is similar. And I think the whole like Becky, Karen, I, it's brilliant, to be honest, because I can, in my academic speak, talk about the, you know, weaponization of white supremacy and feminism, and I can talk all these academic words, but no, we get Becky Karen, we get it. It's, it's, it's brilliant. And that's one of the things that I have, I've really enjoyed in the past. I would, I, I think Twitter, honestly, has been a real tool of like making everyday people 
teachers. Like we are yes. all teachers. We are all are all able to share our experiences. Um, some of us have different backgrounds and degrees and all of those things, but that people know their lives. And so the brilliance that's come out of of Twitter and and sometimes in particular black Twitter has been has been brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And it's one of the things that, you know, I'm continuing to try to share with folks because I, you know, I sort of feel like, um, you know, my participation in black Twitter is largely as a listener and, but I, but I am constantly being educated and I find the, the, the edges that get refined in my own thinking about racism and white supremacy by people like Michael Harriet and Zerlina Maxwell, who I love and adore and was fortunate enough to meet personally once. And, uh, you know, Ellie Mistal, who's a dear friend of mine now over time, you know, they, uh, so many others, right. Who are phenomenal commentators. Um, and, and, you know, you, it doesn't take much to kind of like really get it. Like Brittany Pack, Brittany Packnett Cunningham wrote this amazing thread on Twitter this morning about her experience of self-care as an act of revolution. Yes. And it so moved me. And even though, you know, she, she obviously spoke it from the perspective of being a black woman and the, the perspective of being a black woman who was followed by a lot of white women who were reading about race. Um, I thought about it through the lens of what it takes. And, it, you know, it was a new revelation for me, even from the standpoint of what it takes to be a black woman confronting this moment in time when you also have others that you need to care for, that you love, that, ha that have been put in your path the children and the partners in your home, the work that you do, the money you earn, you know, the layers of the experience of it. Um, you know, I knew it, but it, it, you know, it raised every hair on my body. And also it was a teaching lesson for me as an activist to say, honestly, I also, even though my lens of experience is different, I, you know, I do not have the same experience and I have uh, you know, certain privileges that, that play upon my ability to cope with this in, in obviously strategic ways. Nonetheless, I also need the lesson of my self-care matters too. I can't be out there all the time doing it. And so, you know, even, even just the perspective of reading um, and, and listening to Black Twitter as a white woman who considers herself to be an activist is to me one of the best teaching tools for Twitter that's out there. Um, and I, I do my best to really like watch and lurk and listen and share and amplify when it feels right, but also just to constantly read, yeah. right? That yeah. in and of itself is a massive education and it's an education in real time as we're processing current events. In real time and, and believing people in their experiences and listening and honoring that. Yeah, I, I thought about that today as I, I perfected my cashew milk recipe. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we also got peaches at the grocery store. And it's like, you know, I, I, need to, I need to have those moments of joy. And yes, I will also be watching live feeds and and retweeting folks who were on the ground and there was a there was a protest uh, gathering here in St. Louis and I wasn't able to go to that but like so I'll I'll keep in touch with what's happening but I also have a life I that I deserve to live yes. and experience joyfully yeah yes. yeah no and I imagine you probably experienced that a little bit in your in your political world because it just in terms of knowing when to rest and when to push um, yeah. I mean, it's funny because I actually had someone make an observation about me yesterday, which I, I had not really considered, but sort of shook me a little bit. Um, we, uh, we had an, the unfortunate passing of someone, the second in command of my company died mm. in the middle of the COVID crisis, not of COVID, but about two weeks ago now passed of cancer. And, um, what this person said to me, she's a professional colleague said to me yesterday was, 
you know, Elizabeth, you're just so resilient. You seem to kind of bounce back from everything. You know, you, you're the person who always can experience these horrible things that other people couldn't live through and you get up and you do it again. And I actually had to say to her like, uh, wait, (laughs) I'm not sure that's right. And I'm actually not even sure that's healthy. Right. Um, you know, I, I think that I am, um, I am, I am somebody who is so triggered by injustice. Um, and you know, as I feel like we all are right, you know, everybody in the circles that you and I travel in is, um, I find it very difficult to step away from anything that feels like it urgently needs support or help or education, um, or interpretation, given the fact that I was a lawyer for 15 years for that matter. You know, there are certainly circumstances where I feel like I can share with folks how a particular case or an investigation or the law might apply. Um, and, and that's a teaching opportunity as well. I am not so good, candidly. Like, I'm, and this is one of the reasons why Britney's thread really hit me upside the head in its own way. I'm not very good at figuring out when to withdraw. Um, I feel such a profound obligation to my audience as well. Um, and Brittany pointed this out too, cause she's got this huge platform and I've got, you know, a hundred thousand people following me on Twitter now. And, um, I, I, I feel this, this tremendous obligation to be a conduit to those folks. And the danger of that, of course, is then if I overdo that, I'm the mom at home yelling at my kids about them not brushing their teeth. I'm not taking care of myself. Um, so I'm still, I'm still really trying to find the balance. It's not, um, I, you know, I think it's going to be an ongoing struggle because I can't ever completely step away. You know, I mean, I'm in the news all the time. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, you know this because we're Peloton friends. I am right. really trying to at least physically keep my body uh, in decent working order right now and take care of myself physically. Um, the emotional and the spiritual stuff, I'm still working on the boundaries. <laughs> well, and uh, to remind yourself, just like you t- started us in thinking about the journey, that it is a journey. And that we come to maybe a similar place, but kind of like a spiral staircase, maybe a little higher, maybe a little lower at times. And I have been also reminded, like, what are those lessons? That's something I've been asking myself through the pandemic. Like, what am I noticing? What am I learning? What do I want to remember? Like, some of this is really familiar. Or, hey, some of this is, is, are the struggles that I thought, oh, if I just had time to, or if I just had more time at home or, right. And it's like, oh no, Kira, these are struggles that you are, that, that are real, that are core. And so that work is ongoing. So that gentleness with yourself is, is really important. Yeah, it is. And that, that's also something that I, that I, you know, very candidly, I still work on all the time. Yes. That self-compassion. In all transparency, I, you know, I'm, I tend to be the person who's constantly pushing myself to do more and learn more and be out there more and, uh, and educate more and all that other sort of stuff. So, yeah, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely key. And, you know, I'll just say that I think that one of the things, speaking of kind of lessons through the pandemic and, um, the challenges, what do we want to take away from this? Um, you know, I'm, I'm really starting to dive very deeply into that work because of the opportunity that is being presented by everything being shattered, you know, fundamentally every aspect of our society and our culture being affected by this. Um, and you know, one of the things that I will just say is that we can't neglect the trauma and the grief of what we've all lived through in the last little while. I mean, it's mass death in 10 weeks. Um, and that's on top of everything that is happening, um, that we've already talked about in the context of race and white supremacy in the country day in, day out videotapes of murders and assaults and reporting of all of that. Um, you know, I, I am, I am very mindful of the fact that we can't glaze over, the trauma of the current experience, we can't go numb to it. And we also are going to have a lot of work to do on how we grieve it and mark it 
as we move forward toward what we want to build next. And that too, of course, is cyclical, in my opinion. You know, the way we process grief, you know, I'm going through this right now with the loss, as I said, of someone in our company. There are times where you feel like you've got it mastered, and then there are times where it smacks you upside the head. And um, we're going to have to be very conscious as leaders, as people in community, um, of caring for one another and also sharing tools about all of this. You know, one of the things I've shared with my community is the idea of keeping a grief bowl in your house, which is basically a bowl of water into which every time you're really struggling with something, you pick up a rock or a shell or an object and do your best to place the grief that you're experiencing into that object on a spiritual or an energetic level, and then releasing it into the bowl of water as a way of sort of transmuting it. A lot of the people I work with were like, oh, it's too woo-woo. But honestly, it's a ritual that helps a lot of people to process what's happening now. And I have clients and colleagues and friends who are doing this on a daily basis, a monthly basis, um, and finding that it helps. So that's just one example of what I'm talking about. I think we're also going to have to be really committed. Um, and you and I have spent a lot of time talking about trauma in the past, but really in helping folks to process trauma and to process grief so that we're not all broken when we're trying to come out of this and build something else. You know, I mean, I feel like there's layers of work that are going to have to be done here. Layers, layers. And that piece around compassion, right? So yes. my condolences for the loss of your friend. That's it's so, yeah, it's, it's tough. Like you said, the layers of loss and grief, but I've been reminding myself, cause I also am not great at self-compassion. You know, what would I tell a friend? If I had a friend who came to me and was navigating whatever is in front of me, what might I say with them? And what's, what might I say to them? How might I sit with them? And can I sit with myself like that? It's a challenge. But uh, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts and, and some of your tools. If folks want to hear more from you, how can, they, how can they hear from you? Yeah, well, so we do virtual trainings through my company, which is at um, GaiaLeadershipProject.com. That's our corporate website. Um, but also, I do a daily broadcast on politics and law um, that is over on Patreon. It's... Uh, it, it was sort of an unexpected viral phenomenon when I started talking to my friends on Facebook back in uh, like right around the time of the 2016 election that then got dumped into a whole bunch of political groups and very quickly kind of became huge. So it is now housed on Patreon in the daily version, and that is at patreon.com slash resistance live. And uh, we do a free weekly version on my Facebook page, which is uh, facebook.com slash Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin. So those are all sorts of ways to get to me. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, which is where I'm honestly the most active these days, my handle is EC McLaughlin. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks so much yeah, for joining thank us. You. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Kira. Yeah. And thank you all for joining us. I hope that our conversation triggered your reflection around what's your heroine's journey? What is What are the layers of the onion that are being peeled back for you? And what are you learning from all that's being revealed to us in this time? Thanks for joining us on Raising Equity. Raising Equity.